This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we have another bonus episode for you today. Another bonus? Another one. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that dire. It's pretty good news. I mean, it's... <laughs> a really entertaining interview. Uh, we, we're presenting you today with our interview with uh, Marwan Arani, who is the executive chef and founder of the Chai Pani Restaurant Group, which has a bunch of uh, Indian restaurants in Asheville, North Carolina, and also here in the Atlanta area. Yes, including one in our very building mm-hmm. that is tempting every day. Temptation, you must. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a real. Struggle. It's delicious. This, like, this is not an advertisement. I just like eating there. Yeah, when we did this interview, we were quite hungry by the end, (laughs) quite hungry. As we usually are during our interviews. It's a specific type of podcaster problem. It is, yeah. Podcaster problem. (laughs) Food podcaster problem. There's somebody I've mentioned before on the show, one of my good friends at work, Chandler. He, uh, one thing I love about him is he, everything he's eaten is the best thing he's ever eaten. (laughs) And he's going to tell you all about it. He's going to describe, like, the, the way the cumin is interacting with the rut. Like, he does the whole thing. And he goes to Chaipani's restaurant in our building, which is called Bodywala. He goes there pretty regularly, and he always gets the same thing. And he always <laughs> asks me, Annie, have you ever gotten the tri-tip sandwich? <laughs> I mean, and he just goes on and on. And I love it. It's a beautiful thing about Chandler. It, it's, his excitement is lovely. 
It's very infectious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Merwan's excitement was also lovely, and so we wanted to share with you our discussion with him. So you were you were born in the UK and grew up in India, right? How did you wind up in the American South? <laughs> Great question. So um, my family was Indian. They just happened to be uh, spending a few years in London working when I was born there, but I basically grew up in India. But then in 1990, when I graduated college, my uh, I got a um, graduate assistantship to come and do my MBA at the University of South Carolina, which is in Columbia, South Carolina, not that far from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And the reason I mentioned Myrtle Beach is because I used to wait tables there in the summertime to make money. Um, and um, um, that's how I sort of got introduced to the restaurant business a little bit. And um, the uh, person who ran the restaurant, who owned the restaurant, uh, I ended up um, dating and marrying her daughter, Molly. So to a certain degree, I sort of married into, into the restaurant business a little bit. Uh, but but cooking is part of your family's history too, right? Your your grandfather owned an Irani cafe in India. That's right. So even on, on my side, correct. But he was the only one in the in the family that owned the, owned the cafe, and then um, and then um, my uh, mom, um, my grandmother operated a bed and breakfast in India, and uh, the town that we lived in, there was sort of a, a spiritual. Uh, master guru there who had an ashram and uh, a lot of Westerners would come and um, this Airbnb catered to many of those Westerners and many Indians came too and my mom sort of learned how to cook both, uh, of course she knew how to cook Indian but she learned how to cook Western style food so there I was in a little town in the middle of nowhere and, I, and my, my mom was making sort of Italian style, Neapolitan style pizza and you know and what she thought would be food that would be palatable to Americans, like everything from a, from apple pie to, you know, to a meatloaf. <laughs> that is delightful. Um, <laughs> how did you turn all of this history and then experience into opening your own restaurant? Well, yeah, I, I had no thoughts or even, even that waited tables uh, in grad school. I mean, I was going to graduate school to get my MBA, so I was assuming you know, that my career and future would be in some business marketing um, area. And and that, and, sh- and it was. Uh, I was in the automotive industry working for luxury manufacturers for almost 10 years, Lexus and Mercedes and oh, all wow. aspects. Huh. And, then, um, and then after that, though, um, this was happening in California, uh, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, uh, my wife and I had just had her, her child, her girl, and around the time she was two years old, we just realized that we were living the definition of the rat race. And both of us were working full-time. Um, you know, by the time I got home, I left so early in the morning to, to beat traffic that my daughter was sleeping when I left. And when I came home at night, sometimes as late as 11, um, she was in bed. I mean, I would go at sometimes 24-hour periods without seeing her awake. And, and, um, and we had been through a lot because we, um, you know, had adopted her daughter from India after struggling with fertility for years, so it felt like we had made such a huge commitment and sacrifice to have this child in her family, and here we were not spending it with her. So we left to move to Asheville, North Carolina, and it's you know, a long story how we picked Asheville, but we ended up here, and I changed careers. I moved uh, out of the automotive industry, which is very demanding as far as time went, into um, real estate development. I got lucky to have a connection and got a job here right away. And that was in 2005, and things were going wonderfully until, if you can remember, 2009 came along. 
the Great Recession kicked off, and the entire industry that I was in collapsed uh, because we were doing sort of private gated high end development. And um, and it was in that that moment where I realized I was three weeks away from the company I was working for going bankrupt. Um, where you know we again had another. Um, what are we doing with our lives? Conversation, my wife and I, and um, and that's when she said, "Look, you're, as for as long as I've known you, you've loved food. You're a phenomenal chef, and you've had this idea percolating that you can't stop talking about about this type of Indian restaurant that changes everything that people know about Indian restaurants." Um, and which is, yeah, backstory. All those years, I kept going with and talking about to anybody who listened about this idea I had. She said, "Maybe this is the time to do it." And the reason I'd never done it up to that point was because, you know, it was too huge of a risk and seemed completely impractical to quit a job that supported myself, my family, and afforded us a house to uh, go off and, and do something that had never been done before. And, that you know, and so, but sometimes circumstances just put you in a position where you have no choice but to go for it. <laughs> so here I am in Asheville, North Carolina, probably the whitest town that I had ever lived in <laughs> up to that point. Where I I swear I swear I think the entire population of Indians in the entire town was maybe like ten people. Oh my goodness! And uh, in the mountains of you know of Appalachia, and uh, I opened this restaurant. Um, but in a funny way, everything that I'd been through up to that point was part of the reason why I think we're successful. I had a phenomenal business education. I knew how to write a business plan. I knew financials. I knew how money worked. I knew how to you know borrow money. How to talk to investors. How to talk to banks. Um, I knew how to, you know, price and and figure out payroll and, and labor, uh, and I knew marketing. I mean, I'd worked in, like I said, one thing you learn in selling, high, working in the high-end luxury automobile business is how to sell. And I knew what people would um, be connected to and um, um, what kind of storytelling I needed to tell. I knew that was going to be a huge component of what, what I was trying to do, was telling the story of what I was trying to do. Um, and, uh, and it all came together. Um, and, and now I look back and feel like it was almost a blessing that we started in the middle of a recession because it really taught us about, um, you know, not doing too much, uh, find, you know, honing in on exactly what we wanted to do, yeah. uh, keeping it affordable and finding ways to, um, run the business lean and mean. So even today, um, I mean, you've been in a booty while. I mean, I love the place. It's beautiful. But most people are shocked when I tell them, you know, the budget that we opened the restaurant on. <laughs> there it is. That's, that's how I ended up in the American South. <laughs> would, um, would, you, would you talk a little bit about the food that you serve at uh, Chaipani and Bodiwala and MG Road? Yeah. So, you know, this, this thing that had been prickling in my head forever was, was that um, – why is the only food in, available in America? Um, this strip mall lunchtime buffet with curries and naan and chicken tikka masala. And, uh, and this is food that I never ate growing up. I, I didn't eat naan unless I went to a restaurant. Like, we just don't eat this way in India. But kind of like, you know, I guess, um, sort of family style spaghetti and meatballs, Italian food was once upon a time what everybody thought about when they thought Italian or pizza or even strip mall Chinese food. Um, that's, that's the category that Indian food was stuck in. And, um, and I'm walking around saying, where's the home-style cooking? Where's the meals that we eat every day at home? Where's the, um, the street food of India, which is so much more interesting and varied 
and and um, you know fun and approachable than sort of this exotic you know curry and rice and stuff that we don't even really eat. I jokingly called it banquet food or wedding food because it's the kind of food that you get when you go to a wedding. That's the only time you kind of have a buffet in India is really at a wedding. Um, so, um, so what we do is is exactly what I described. Um, I started off with only wanting to do street food, and street food in India is it's amazing. Um, the problem with uh, calling Indian food Indian food is that it, there's no such thing. It's like saying, "Oh, I love European food." Um, it, there's no such thing, right? Is it Spanish? Is it Italian? Is it Greek? You know, what, what are we talking about? So the same with Indian food. When you say Indian food, it, it doesn't exist. Um, uh, I grew up eating not Indian food, but the food of the region that I was in, which is Maharashtrian food. When I went south to visit my family there, I was eating, you know, Kerala food or South Indian food. Um, if I went to Dehradun where my mom grew up, I was eating the food of, of that area. But if there is one food that can be described truly as Indian food, it's our street food. And the reason being because street food has no regionality or culture or nationality or, or religion associated to it. Um, the way street food evolved was, you know, as migrants left working on farms from wherever their regions were and to the big cities like Delhi and Mumbai and Calcutta and Bangalore, um, many of the enterprising ones that became street hawkers started just mashing up food. Um, they'd find, you know, things that were available locally and influences from the way they knew how to cook. Um, so most street food dishes, if you deconstruct them, you'll say like, oh, well, that component actually normally you find in South India, and that component, that's very Maharashtrian, and that component's from, you know, um, Gujarat. And, and that's what I love about it. I, I kind of describe it like a, sort of a DJ making a, a sort of mashing up various beats and rhythms to create a whole new sort of track, and, and that's what street food is. And it's very unique. So no one street food vendor's, you know, Bilkuri, for example, is exactly the same as the other guys. It's all based on what they decided to make off of it. So that's where we bought the chai pani. And then the second thing that we bought was um, Molly, my wife, was, you know, when we first opened, felt like, I don't know if you can open a restaurant where it's only like small snacks. I mean, you know, now the top of restaurants and small plates of a rage, but back then she was like, I think you want to give people like the option of a meal also. And uh, so I decided to go with food that everybody cooks at home every day. Um, it's called a tali, and uh, it's how most Indians eat. Uh, we don't eat buffets at home. <laughs> we, uh, we have a variety of small dishes, so two or three types of vegetables, um, rice, lentils, what we call dal. Um, you know, if you eat meat in India, then maybe there's a little protein, like a little chicken curry or something. Um, there's always a raita or a yogurt-based component so that you know, it helps cool down the heat of the spices. It helps the digestion. There's always a little fat bread or starch, whether it's rice or, or, or roti. And, uh, and it's sort of, um, it's served in a round circular metal platter with lots of little containers. So it's just sitting down and eating, you know, like a pile of, like a meat and potato style meal where you got a pile of starch and then a pile of like protein. Um, you've got a small portion of a, of a large variety of foods that all balance each other, something sweet, something salty, something spicy, something sour, um, something acidic, something bitter. And most Indians, whether they use the round plate format or not, it just basically that's how they eat, um, at least growing up. Um, you know, now we've got fast food out the wazoo. So that's what Chaipani does. And, and we, use the, we use that um, the tali, that, that, the, that meal, to essentially showcase the diversity of Indian cuisine. 
So every day the style changes. So one day the quote-unquote curry might be from the Malabar coast, and then one day it's from you know central India, and then one day it's from north India, like butter chicken or sag paneer. And, and sure, I'll I'll you know love to rotate in some tried and true lunch buffet specials, but then I'm got my way to point out this is a North Indian style dish that's normally served at festive occasions. And so those are the two things that Chaipani serves. And I know I know this is a long answer to your question, but Gotiwala is slightly different because even the street food of India isn't a monolith. There's you know, many varieties of it and Chaipani focused on the variety called Chat, which is usually sort of crispy, crunchy, mostly vegetarian, sweet, sour, tangy um, lots of tamarind chutney and, and green chili chutney and yogurt used in it. Um, lots of crispy wheat and, and crunchy chickpea noodle type stuff things. And then there's another component of street food in India, um, mostly in North India, that's the grill. And that's usually at night. Um, and so at nighttime, you know, you go to a, the right street in Bombay or Delhi, you'll find, you know, vendors grilling up kebabs, you know, chicken, um, lamb, beef, you know, obviously not if you're Hindu, but if you're Muslim, uh, paneer, and and it's its own complete different street scene um, with fresh naan and fresh herbs. So that's what Gotiwala does. It does the Indian street grill while Chaipani does sort of the chopped or the Indian street food. That was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. Uh, Long answers are terrific on this show. Um, uh, I, I love the idea of, of Thali's. I'd never thought about it this way, but I guess it's not even like a meat and three. It's like a meat and like seven, kind of. Or like exactly. A <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and, and there's no one central focus that it's the meat and. It's, right. always, it's like, it's just the seven. Yeah, which is what it's supposed <laughs> to be. We have more with our interview with Marwan, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And back to the interview. I read that uh, your your mother came and like brought your grandmother's spice blend recipes when you were opening Chaipani and like helped train your staff and um, and and I and, and you guys still use your own spice blends for for all of your restaurants in, in addition to selling them, um, which which is a long introduction to me wanting to ask like what is what does your family think about all of this? <laughs> so. Um... You know, I, I thought they'd be horrified at the idea of their son sort of being after all this education and, and, and career in one business to suddenly dump it all for this risky business. But um, my, both of them just took it completely in stride. I mean, like you, like you mentioned, when I called my mom and told her I was doing this, um, I asked him, like, do you have any interest in coming and helping out because you are a way better cook than I am, and there's the whole side of this that, uh, you know, if I didn't, if I, if you don't come, I'm going to have to ask somebody else how to do this. And she, yeah, she was a total trooper, and she came. And, um, uh, and yeah, for spent two months, I mean, forget training. She was working the line the day we opened. I mean, you know, my 60-year-old mom was had a little apron on and was, uh, you know, we were slammed. I mean, slammed means there was the day we opened. Um, I think we had prepared food for maybe 50 to 75 people walking through the door. Within the first hour, over 100 people walked in. Oh, my goodness. The line was around the block, and, and we ran out of food at, um, at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and had to shut down the restaurant. Um, and, and that happened three days in a row, and we finally had to completely shut the restaurant down for like three days just to prep and recover. Um, and, yeah, my mom was just, she was just amazing through it all. Um, she would, you know, get here at 6 in the morning and start prepping, and, and, and you know, these, uh, these young American cooks that I had hired almost all of whom are still with me now in leadership positions. They had no idea what they were doing, but they were just so excited and so eager to learn and um, um, uh, and just excited that my mom was in the kitchen. So they all called her mom. You know, she'd, she'd yell at them. She'd hit them with a, with a spatula when they were doing something wrong. And it was just like a scene out of a movie, practically. And, and it was probably one of the sweetest times of, of opening Chaipani. She would um, make family meal for everybody, you know, before we opened, um, and and we'd all sit around, and she insisted, no matter what everybody was doing, we'd all sit down and eat family meal, and and she cooked the whole thing, and she wouldn't eat; she'd just stand there making fresh rotis for us all, you know. Um, and uh, till today, I mean, she's just incredibly proud of the restaurant. She gets nervous, you know. Both my mom and dad get nervous every time I start a new one because you know they're Indian and. Like, well, it's going so well, why take a risk on another one, you know? Um, but every time I, you know, whether I end up in, you know, Time Magazine or whatever, the Wall Street Journal, whatever, I mean, it, I don't think there's a person in India that doesn't know about it because my mom's out there telling them my son is in Time Magazine or my son is in Bon Appetit or whatever. I mean, half the time she doesn't even know what these magazines are, like Food and Wine and Bon Appetit or whatever have you. 
um, you know, besides the more popular ones, but still, she's just, you know, telling everybody, oh, yes, Bon Appetit's a very, 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 you know, <laughs> important magazine. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, they're, 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 they come um, every couple of years to visit. And, um, um, yeah, they're just, I think they're just happy for me and, and for my family and for the team here. I mean, many of my, many of the folks that work for me have gone to India and stayed with my parents. I've taken many people with me and, um, and a couple of my team have gone on their own. And every time they go to India, they'll make sure to stop by my hometown and visit with my mom. So it's very, still very sweet and familial that way. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Um, sort of the same way that you were, you were talking about, um, the street food in India being from all kinds of different cultures. Um, have any Southern and other local influences uh, made their way into the food that you guys cook? You mean from here where I'm in the South? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That was, that was, I think one of the big, one of the big um, differentiating factors also in, in what I was doing. Um, you know, I, I wasn't classically trained as a chef. I didn't, I didn't go to culinary school. And for the first few years, I sort of always felt slightly like an outsider or, an imposter, you know, I was getting all these accolades and, you know, people were raving and, and I'd never been to culinary school, but, um, but I knew what I was doing. I mean, I'd spent insane amounts of time, you know, at home sort of honing my craft as a, as a good cook. I understood classic French cuisine. I understood modern American cuisine. I, of course, understood Indian food and, and I, and I studied, I mean, you know, my friends and family will, would all the time just, Jokingly, you know, like every good home cook will get a compliment. Oh my God, this is amazing! You should open your own restaurant one day. But I, I was sort of avant-garde in the sense that I was the latest modernist cuisine techniques, with, whether it was molecular gastronomy or using sous vide when they first, you know, started appearing in the in the mid '90s, late '90s. Uh, and I really studied and understood food. So when I came to the South, I, I put a real effort into really studying. This was even before Chaipani opened. I wanted to understand the history of Southern food. And in many ways, it's similar to, you know, food in India in different different parts of India, where in the poorer parts of India, it's substance um, eating. You know, you're foraging, you're um, making do with not much, you're extracting maximum nutrition and, you know, flavor out of off bits and, and, and plants and weeds and, and, and being creative. Um, my mom's side of the family uh, are farmers. And they grow, they farm in the mountainous regions of North India. And, um, you know, even now, if I go for a walk with one of my cousins uh, through the woods or, or, you know, by the farms, he's constantly foraging and picking up a weed and telling me that, oh, yeah, this is used during the season to do that. Um, so that sensibility was always in me. And, and uh, I looked around here and I realized that um, a lot of the big difference, though, between um, of the way the South cooks, uh, where, they, again, we use, you know, as much as we can, sort of what once would be called lesser ingredients just because they were cheaper and, and you know, whether you're talking collards or sweet potatoes or, um, or corn. Um, but Indians did the same thing, but Indian, India had a 5,000-year leg up on flavor. We knew how to use spices to make flavorful these dishes so you didn't feel like you were eating lesser or, you know, ingredients. And um, and here that was my idea. Like, what if uh, I bought into the restaurant, you know, green tomatoes and kale and sweet potatoes and mustard greens and corn and uh, and ramps and uh, and started um, incorporating them into our, our food and uh, you know okra and I did it sort of unconsciously without even really thinking about it. 
Um, but it kind of became this thing where everybody would say, like, I love how you've taken kale and married it with, you know, pecora batter and, and came up with this new thing. I love what you're doing with okra. And they think that I'm doing it because these are inherently southern ingredients. And I'm saying, no, I'm doing it inherently because this is where I happen to be. And that's just the most natural thing that I could do because that's what my mom would do if you plucked her out of her hometown and stuck her in the middle of somewhere. She'd still cook the food she cooks, but she'd look around and use everything that was around her. How did you decide to open a southern barbecue joint? Buxton Hall. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, good question. I, I, I still, I, that's still a head-scratcher for me <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> um, I guess um, that was 100% serendipity in the sense that I had no idea, intention, or plans to do anything other than what I was doing and variations in what I was doing. Um, but... Um, Asheville's a small town, and most of the restaurateurs and the chefs sort of know each other and run into each other. Um, and I'd run into Elliot Moss, uh, who's the chef and my partner at Buxton Hall, and I'd run into him when he was cooking at a restaurant called The Admiral here in Asheville. And The Admiral at the time was, you know, really sort of making a name for itself as this sort of almost like a dive gastropub where this guy who also, like me, had never been classically trained, he had started off working at Chick-fil-A and then worked in bars for a long time as just a fry cook in bars, was making this extraordinary food. And, and, and it was. And the few times I ate there, I was like, this is incredible. I'm in a cinder block building that looks like it's a bar on the wrong side of the tracks eating incredible food. So then, um, out of the blue, suddenly, um, uh, not out of the blue, sorry. Then, fast forward, I've got Chaipani, I'm doing well, and I read in the paper somewhere that um, the chef at the Admiral is opening a barbecue restaurant. And I was like, oh, wow, that's going to be probably amazing. I mean, you know, I just had the sense that it'll probably be really cool because the article talked about how he wanted to go back to his roots and cook barbecue, whole hog barbecue the way he grew up eating it in Eastern Carolina. And I was like, wow, it's going to be really cool. And I was excited for it. And then uh, I heard through the grapevine that the project fell apart. I don't know what came over me, but I just reached out to him just to talk about, like, so, so what happened? Why did the project fall apart? And, you know, I was just thought I would offer support or, you know, whatever, encouragement or, or help um, to help him get along. And um, we started off drinking old fashions, and four hours later, <laughs> um, we had, I'd agreed to help him open his restaurant. So <laughs> that's what kind of happened. I mean... I mean, I'm saying, but the things that in those four hours I recognized was that was how similar his story was to mine. Um, you know, he, like I said, was an accidental chef to a certain degree. Um, you know, it wasn't classically trained, but had this really clear vision for this thing that he wanted to do that was, uh, you know, that was his uh, pushing back against what he felt barbecue had turned into, you know, like, most yeah. people don't understand how barbecue got its start, you know, how... You know, the Europeans bought, you know, pork and, and so many of these ingredients. And, you know, whether it was the first slaves that were learning, trying to figure out how to cook, you know, a meal for themselves to sort of the black southern tradition of making barbecue. What we think of as barbecue today is so divorced from that. And he wanted to bring that back. So. Yeah. So um, I, when I saw that in him, you know, that, I, that was what sort of just made me just take this leap of faith and say, let's do it. I mean, talk about catching lightning in a bottle. I mean, God knows. It was, it, you know, it's been an amazing success. So. Oh, yeah. I, we got to eat there while we were in Asheville, and oh, it was really, it was really delicious. 
Um, oh, awesome! I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and, and yeah, and it's all it's all comfort food. I mean, it, and it's all you know finding exactly. what you find off the land. I guess while we're talking about it, uh, you know, you mentioned Asheville is super white. Um, and, you know, everyone talks about Southern hospitality, but that has not always extended to people of color in the South. Um, could you, w- would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your experience as a person of color there um, and, you know, introducing Indian food into this largely white food scene? Um, sure. I mean, um, you know, I've always felt sort of, I don't know. I mean, you know, people ask me this question all the time, like, hey, you're from India, you're brown, you know, Myrtle Beach, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, now Asheville, like, have you ever experienced, you know, any kind of whatever, discrimination or otherness or anything like that? I've always been very natural in my own skin. Um, you know, most people, if you were to talk to me on the phone and didn't know I was Maron Ryan from India, you may not even guess I'm Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my predilection for languages helps me, you know, adopt accents very easily. It wasn't at all difficult for me to start speaking like I grew up in America. Um, and, um, and I think um, also just sort of the history of the South has been, um, you know, with uh, sort of uh, African-Americans, not so much with, you know, Latinos or Indians or Vietnamese. And that sort of diaspora to the South has been happening more recently, you know, over the last 20 years, if you will. Um, versus, you know, the South's history with, with uh, you know, the black history in the South is a lot older. So I feel like it's not quite the same. It's not, it's not fair to the history of, you know, blacks in the South to even compare my experiences as an immigrant to theirs. It, it, it's just not, it's, it's just absolutely unconscionable, I would say, to even, even look at it that way from my perspective. Um, so, but having said that, what is really interesting to me um, it, and, and, and a reflection of this conversation has been happening in this series that I'm doing called Brown of the South, the separate series, is that the South is changing dramatically and quickly. Um, it, you know, there's myself, there's Asha Gomez, uh, Vishwapat, Manit Chauhan, Chidi Kumar, uh, Farhan Sam. I mean, I'm naming Indian chefs, the chefs of Indian origin that have their restaurants and are doing amazing things in the South, not in San Francisco, not in L.A., not in D.C., not in New York, but in small towns in the South, Nashville, Asheville, Birmingham, Oxford, Mississippi, um, you know, and uh, the fact that we're not just, not just doing well or succeeding, but flourishing and being acknowledged for what we're doing, to me is indicative that even what we think of as the South is changing. It's not all happening at the same time, and it's not happening everywhere, but for me, even a town like even a town like Asheville is a little bit of a blueprint for what I'm calling the New South is going to look like. Um, immigrants are coming here. Um, there's economic opportunities. It's affordable. Housing is affordable. Um, it's you know labor costs are affordable. Um, so um, you know Lexington, Kentucky is you know jokingly referred to as Mexington, Kentucky because it's a large Latino population that's starting to. Uh, come to the South, and, and I think it's awesome and amazing and probably scary for some people, um, but it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's a change. So my daughter, you know, she looks just like me. Um, she's been here since she was two years old, as I mentioned, and um, uh, as far as she's concerned, if you were to ask her, where are you from, she'll say from the South. And 
I think 20 years from now, it won't be so unusual for someone that looks like me or some variation of black or brown to say I'm from the South and it to be completely natural and normal. We've got a little bit more of our discussion with Mirwan for you, but first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And back to the interview. You said earlier that it was kind of a long story, uh, but if you wouldn't mind going into it, why why Asheville? Um, because even when I was in California and we were looking at um, somewhere we could move where, you know, we could get out of the rat race and have a, a quality of life that we looked for and sort of culture and the progressiveness that both me and Molly and I were, was important to us. Um, um, Asheville just was um, on the radar, so to speak, back in 05, 04, 05. Um, you know, there were sort of a lot of talk about these cool hip towns like Austin and, um, you know, uh, Portland and, um, um, and Asheville as being sort of these, and, these up-and-coming towns that were sort of like these little pockets. 
Um, and being that Molly's family, my wife's family was in South Carolina, um, we just sort of said, you know, let's just try something completely different. And uh, so we moved from, you know, a really big city, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, to this little town and found it to be, to a certain degree, even if not necessarily ethnically diverse, it was, at, it was um, you know, what's the word, uh, ideologically diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people like us who are moving here to start sort of new lives, um, and whether they're young families or whether they're single idealistic artists and craftsmen and makers, um, it, were, it was sort of a, a, a gold rush to a certain degree in Asheville in, in the mid-2000s of small independent little businesses opening, including small independent little breweries, mm-hmm. many of which now have blossomed and boomed into huge industries and uh, are sort of, I think, continuing to fuel Asheville's growth. So it was almost more refreshing to be in Asheville and have this wonderful and diverse mix of ideologies, both because we're still in the South, so it's not like you can get away from you know, that, but you also have, uh, you know, just a wave of sort of um, people coming from other parts of the country and watching the two um, coexist uh, was a wonderful thing to see. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone, I feel like most people that we talk to are like, yeah, well, we had a baby, so we figured we'd move to Asheville. Um. <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's the, that would have been the shorter answer. <laughs> No, that one was good too. Um, uh, also, everyone that we've spoken to has has talked about the spirit of collaboration um, among people in the food and drink scene in in Asheville. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about how you uh, how you collaborate with other folks there, and and like what kind of partnerships and relationships you formed with other restaurateurs and uh, farmers and brewers? Yeah, it's a very close knit sort of family of restaurateurs and makers and farmers. I mean, it's a small town. I mean, even just ge- geographically speaking. And we're surrounded by makers around us, you know, farmers and distillers and brewers and and potters, um, and um, and uh, and it's you know, I mean, in, sure, in San Francisco, I mean, you know, product can, uh, coming from Tamales Bay or or Napa, I mean, it's still coming from like an hour to two hours to you know, a hundred miles away sometimes. Whereas over here, product is literally coming like from eight minutes away. Um, wow. Where I live, you know, it's 10 minutes outside of town. And if you just go another five minutes, I mean, it's just farmland and, and all the local farmers. So um, we all know each other well. And uh, we all sort of kind of came up at the same time, you know, right right around the middle of the 2000s is when Alpha started opening a restaurant that put many of us on the map and put Ashland on the map a little bit. And uh, a kinship formed because of that. So we're constantly working with each other. Um, we just reach out to collaborate in events, um, support each other, eat each other's restaurants, uh, hang out often, get involved in the same events and charities. So if I get approached for something, I'll immediately go to the rest of my community uh, of chefs and restaurateurs and ask them if they want to be involved. Uh, we all step up for each other. Uh, if one of us starts a cool initiative, all of us you know, take the cue and share that information with each other. We have our own independent restaurant association called the Asheville Independent Restaurant Association. And, um, um, for example, I'm collaborating right now with, uh, you know, um, 14 other restaurateurs, chefs, and, and makers in town and businessmen in town to start our own food and wine festival because the old one just petered out. It was sort of more of a corporate-run type festival that didn't really represent the town. And we're all collaborating now to take on putting on a food and wine festival that's 
exactly what you talked about, community, collaborative, engaged, where we all work together. So it's been one of the most, um, it's been another, uh, I mean, back again, why Asheville? It's very hard to get that in a big city. Um, it's much harder in Atlanta. I mean, even though I'm close with many people, it's hard because you're physically separated, um, you know, um, and traffic and just all the hassle of a big city, it's hard to make time to connect with your community. In a small town like Asheville, it's, it's one, of its, one of its greater blessings. I, I mean, I think you pretty much covered <laughs> most of our questions, unless there's anything that you would like to talk about that we didn't discuss, anything at all. I mean, the, 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 the emphasis of the, the podcast and the show is on, I mean, I know what the, how stuff works is about, but I'm assuming this is a different focus, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Our, our show is um, uh, food, science, and history and culture. And, um, Got it. And now, now kind of specifically within particular areas. Like we're, we're trying to take a field trip once every couple months to go to another place around the South and just see what's up. Right. I mean, since you mentioned culture and food and science, I mean, it's the more time I'm spending in really studying food, the history of food, I find that the history of food is inseparable from the history of humanity. I mean, almost everything we've done as a species uh, are you know, settling down into small societies instead of being nomadic, moving away from hunter-gatherer into more of an agricultural lifestyle. Um, our settlements on the banks of rivers or shores or, or near mountains or valleys, uh, our civilizations, our wars, our explorations, uh, Columbus sailing you know, out um, to find you know, the Americas, Every, it's all been driven by food, by looking for it, by you know, finding new sources for it by finding new experiences and flavors. Um, and food and, and along with that sort of religion, you know, which the two are go so intertwined that, you know, you can't separate the two. Um, and uh, and, and so it's, it's the, if, when you study food and you, and you study the history of food, you realize you study the history of who humans are and, and how we got to where we got today. And, and even now, I mean, I believe that um, food is culturally shaping us. I mean, I think... You know, whether it's Instagram or social media or um, or delivery services or the latest in technology, it still always seems to find a way to center around around food. Um, so, yeah, that that would be my sort of takeaway thought. <laughs> this brings us to the end of our interview with Marwan. Uh, one of my favorite thing about this interview is he kind of summed up the whole history of food as a like throwaway at the end. Oh yeah, yeah. We were like, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, actually, food is human history, and <laughs> it was this beautiful quote. He just gave it to us for mm-hmm. free. It was lovely. Yes, it was lovely. We hope you enjoyed the interview, and we would enjoy hearing from you, listeners. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media if you'd like to get in touch with us there. We are at saverpod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you, as always, to our super producer, Dylan Fagan. Thank you to you for listening. And we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. 
So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 